Now, before you're seated, the Nicene Creed that we've been looking at in our series is, in one way, written as a prayer, ends with Amen. We really are speaking to God as we say it. But in a baptism service like today, we don't actually say the Nicene Creed. So we're going to begin our sermon today affirming just part of it as our opening prayer. So let's say, let's affirm this together as a prayer to our Lord, saying together. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're being seated, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37, which is page 910. In the Red Bibles under the seat in front of you, Acts chapter 2, page 910. We continue looking at the Nicene Creed, which we affirm each week, except when it's a baptism. We use the Apostles' Creed instead. And in the Nicene Creed, we find these words. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's quoting Acts 2.38, which we'll look at in a moment. But today we have four baptisms taking place, so it's a fitting week for us to ponder together these words, this part of the creed that we affirm as Christians. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so this morning we're going to look at the three parts of that phrase. One, baptism. For the forgiveness of sins. Now, as always in this series on the Nicene Creed, our goal is to better understand what it is that we're affirming, certainly, but also to then have our hearts lifted in worship as a result. And so on this Baptism Sunday, we're going to look together at this phrase, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So first, one. We acknowledge one baptism. Now, our service began today with words quoting from Ephesians 4. You may or may not know that it's an exact quote from Ephesians 4. But we began with, there is one body and one spirit. There is one hope in God's call to us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4 quoted to start our service. And the point here is, we don't have Anglican baptism, and Presbyterian baptism, and Baptist baptism, and Roman Catholic baptism. We may do things a bit differently, which we certainly do. But there is one Lord, and all who are baptized into the name of the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are baptized into one church. You are not baptized into Holy Cross. As wonderful as I think we are. But you're baptized into Jesus. All who receive baptism rightly are joined with the one Lord. We acknowledge one baptism. But it's also one in that it cannot be repeated. 
If you were baptized as a child, you aren't then baptized again as an adult. Now that would not include, say, baptism uh, in, by uh, Mormon baptism, for example, which is not Christian baptism. But if you received Christian baptism, that does not get repeated when you are older. We acknowledge one baptism. Second, we acknowledge one baptism. Baptism is a sacrament that Jesus tells us to do, and it marks our formal entrance into his people, the church. Salvation is not individualistic, just me and God. We are joined into the church, into his people, through faith and through this outward sign that God gives us. In obedience to Jesus, we expect all Christians to be baptized. We invite all children, including infants, like those baptized today, infants of believing parents, to be baptized as well. Because if parents are a part of the covenant people of God, their children are invited to be as well. Now these children need to come to personal faith and trust in Jesus later, but they're welcomed into the family because they're a part of believing families. Not welcoming children as part of God's family would be to exclude them, and we don't do that. We invite and welcome and encourage children of believing parents to be fully part of God's family. We don't tell children they can't be a part of God's family until they reach a certain age. We acknowledge them as a part of the family because they're a part of covenant Christian families, and so they're a part of us already. And so they get to receive the same sacrament that we've received. Now, my children, I have two, my children are American because they are my kids whether they were biologically mine or adopted, because they're in my family, they're a part of what I'm a part of. Now they need to learn what that means, they need to learn why that's important, they need to learn how to be good citizens, but we don't exclude them from citizenship until they can decide for themselves. They are Americans, and they receive all the benefits of that citizenship, and we raise them as Americans, not to become Americans. These baptized as children are not raised just to become Christians, but as Christians. And then must be taught to put their faith in Jesus as they grow. In obedience to Jesus, we baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus explicitly instructs us in Matthew 28. Now, if you have your Bibles open and you look at Acts 2.38 and as well as a couple places in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you may notice that it says baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, not specifically in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus commanded. So I just want to give a brief comment on that, because I know that sometimes brings up questions. So Peter, in Acts 2, here in this passage, he's preaching to Israelites. He's preaching to Jews who are a part of God's covenant people already, but what have they just done? Not them personally, but the, the Jewish leaders. What have they just done? They just killed Jesus. And he rose from the dead. So that's actually one of the main points in his sermon that he just preached in the first part of Acts 2. 
He says, quite literally, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, proving that he is the Messiah. And so they get quite nervous and ask Peter, what then should we do if we just killed him and he came back from the dead and he proved that he's the Messiah? What do we do now? That's a good question. I think that's probably the right question at that point. And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized in the name of the Messiah you just killed and God raised from the dead. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan that he's been revealing to you and through you all along, and you now need to pledge allegiance to the guy you just killed but was raised. This is probably not to be understood as the new norm, only baptizing in Jesus' name, but in the context as a very understandable and reasonable response to that specific situation of those listening to Peter preach at that time. We acknowledge one, baptism. Now also on this, when it comes to baptism, there is a very common issue raised about the quantity of water used. You'll notice that, for example, we use a very small amount of water, and we pour it on the person's head. Now, there is no question whatsoever that the earliest baptisms in the church were done by full immersion, dunking people under the water and bringing them back up. No question. That's the way it was done originally. But the Bible does not state anywhere how wet you have to get for it to count. Baptism symbolizes cleansing from sin as well as being joined to Jesus in his death, going down under the water and coming back up to resurrection. It symbolizes that, and it is, I think, I think we would agree, it is probably easier to see those symbols in a lot of water. Cleansing, dying under the water and coming back up. There's no question you could probably see the image and the symbol better. But it's not about how much water we use or how wet we get. All the way back to the first century, actually in the time of some of the apostles while they were still alive. In the first century, the church recognized that the amount of water is actually irrelevant. It does help with the symbolism, but it does not affect the act itself. There was a document from the first century that we have uh, called the Didache. And it was used as sort of a, a training manual for new Christians. And as I said, it, it, its content literally goes back to the time of some of the apostles. And it said, specifically about baptism, it said this. You should use flowing water. That's, you know, river water where the water is moving. Um, but if you can't, use still water. You should use cold water. Cold water is invigorating. You should use cold water. But if you can't, use warm water. You should use a lot of water. But if you can't, just pour water over the person's head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the point is that very as early as the first century, people understood that the quantity or the temperature of the water actually did aid in the symbolism, but it did not affect the actual event itself. What matters is what God does, not the amount of water or the temperature of the water. And I will also say that if we're not careful, 
holding too strongly to the amount of water, which is never commanded in the Bible, if we hold too strongly to that, it can become a sort of legalism that says it's all about us doing the right mechanical things in order to make it work. Baptism is, what, is about what God does, and he gives us this rite of baptism to both symbolize and enact his work on our behalf. And that can happen equally in a lot of cold water or a small amount of warm water, because it's God's work, not the water's work. We acknowledge one's baptism. And third, for the forgiveness of sins. It is not just baptism as an act. It is, in fact, for something. It is not just our public profession of our faith, but it is actually for something that God does in us. It's a sacrament. It actually accomplishes something. It symbolizes, and in it, God brings about the thing it symbolizes. It symbolizes God's work of cleansing through the cleansing from our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It symbolizes dying in the water and being raised to new life, and in it, God actually brings about those things, which we must receive in faith. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I have led new member classes in a number of churches prior to coming here, and one of the things that I always end up doing is addressing this specific question, because I think it's a, a, a common one. It comes up every time we do this from people, especially from those coming from a more non-denominational or Baptist background, and it's because they are absolutely correct that baptism is not mechanical automatic salvation. They're right about that. Absolutely right about that. And then because they're right about that, they then get concerned with this language of for the forgiveness of sins because it sounds to them like get baptized, you're in, check the box, all your sins are automatically forgiven forever, period. And it, in that context, it, I have found it to be very helpful when I point out that those words in the creed baptism for the forgiveness of sins is itself an exact quote from Peter in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And I think it does tend to help for those that are concerned with that language to realize that we actually are quoting Peter. This is not something we made up for ourselves. We need to understand what it means, yes, but we should recognize that we are affirming what the Bible specifically says baptism is. Or as my seminary professor liked to joke, uh, it's amazing how often the Bible quotes the prayer book. <laughs> so this is one of those where the, what, what we are affirming in the prayer book is just quoting scripture itself. And we do mean that it is for the forgiveness of sins, in that we are joined into the church, we are joined into the forgiven, into the covenant people of God. That must be received rightly. As the Bible makes abundantly clear, as our Anglican 39 articles say, baptism needs to be received rightly, that is, with faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. What God does for us must be received in faith. It is not just automatic, mechanical. 
We are not forgiven because of the act alone. We are forgiven because what Jesus has done for us on the cross, which we receive in faith. And the act of baptism makes that formal and enacts that for us and applies it to us. It's for the forgiveness of sins. In it, God places his name and his claim on us, marks us as his own, and we are welcomed into his church. But we must trust in him and what he does for us. Salvation is up to him, not us. The Holy Spirit is given by him, not us. We trust in his accomplishment, not our own. So in baptism, it is essential to understand and realize that we are not the primary actors. He is doing something for us and to us. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins because it is from God, and we receive it in faith. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then so as we witness and participate in baptisms today, this one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, as we do that, we are then all, together in this room, invited to renew our commitments made in our own baptisms. See, immediately after this verse uh, where Peter talks about, tells his listeners to repent and be baptized, immediately after, in verse 41 and 42, it says they then devoted themselves to living it out. It wasn't just an act that was done in the past full stop. They then devoted themselves to living out that new life that we have in Christ. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship together, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so commitments will be made today to live out your baptisms. It's not just something that happened one time in the past, whether you were old enough to remember it or not, but it involves firm commitment to then live that out. And those commitments are serious, and they matter. That's why we do baptismal preparation, to make sure we understand the commitments that we're making. And these commitments made by those up front today are a reminder to the rest of us and an opportunity for the rest of us to renew our commitments that we make in baptism. We are each called to devote ourselves to living out the life of the newly baptized, of those among the forgiven, the new life of those united to Christ. Now I will say, all of us, in one way or another, are in need of constant renewal and reminder and recommitment to our baptismal promises. Sometimes that comes in the form of a good solid reminder. That was a kick if you couldn't see in the back. Sometimes it comes in a firm reminder that we've made this commitment. And sometimes, for all of us, no matter where we are, we just need, we leak, our brains leak, we forget, and we need to renew and recommit. So every time we have a baptism, we have the opportunity to be reminded of and recommit ourselves to the commitments and faith uh, made in baptism. So we have the opportunity, each one of us, wherever we are today, to do that together in our service. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so may we each renew our commitment to living that out in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.